join me in Romans chapter 15. Hopefully you've got a Bible, either in your lap, on your phone, on a tablet, something of that nature. Romans 15. Last week uh, we were in this same exact passage we're going to be in today. And as time was progressing, I was in the middle of the second out of three points on the handout. And some folks were getting extremely nervous because of the time. And at the last minute, I let them know that we were not doing the third point last week. So it'll end up being the, really the first main point today. We'll briefly hit the two points from last week. And then two more things this week. Romans 15, if you're there. Uh, if you flip ahead, you see that we only have another chapter and a half to go in the book of Romans. And it'll go by quickly. Uh, really just about a month left, uh, uh, presuming. I'm not exactly sure, but probably about a month, four or five weeks left. Romans chapter 15. I don't need to do a lot of review before verse 14 because this is Paul winding the book down. So what I want to do is look at eight verses this morning. As we read this, would you do this before we even start launching into the passage because this is the Word of God. I want you to really focus on what the passage is saying. Read it with intentionality. Try to read it with understanding. Right now, though, even while I'm speaking, bring God into your focus. You should have had that already there as you've been singing. And ask the Lord, Lord, would you speak to me out of today's text? You have us here for a reason. You've brought me by your sovereignty to this location, sitting in that seat this morning, looking at this passage. Um, It may be the very first time you're here with us. I have no idea what we're going to be in. God wants to speak to you out of this passage of Scripture. So invite Him. And I want to encourage you a little tips to do is as you're doing that, just do this. Lord, whatever you show me, I'm going to obey. I dare you to do that. That's when he starts talking to you. Lord, speak to me. Whatever you show me, I'm going to obey. That's when he'll really open the passage to us today. Verse 14. Paul, in A.D. 56, writing to the Roman church, he had not even been there. He writes the following, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That means brothers and sisters. I'm satisfied about you that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But, as he's winding the book down, on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder. Why? Because of the grace. Grace means gift. God gave me a gift. Why have you written so boldly and by way of reminder? Because of the grace given me by God. What grace is that, Paul? The grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. It's this, I'm His minister to the Gentiles in, here's his attitude, in the priestly service. I thought Paul was an apostle. His attitude toward what he does is, I'm doing what's a priestly service of the gospel of God. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this priestly service? Why are you being so bold in your writing and reminding us of these things? He continues. So that the offering, we could even say Paul's saying, my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We covered those three verses last week. This will be this week's text, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. How did God do this through you, Paul? By word and deed. What are those deeds? By the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, watch verse 20 and 21. Here's Paul's attitude. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. 
Lest I build on someone else's foundation. I don't want to do that. But as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52, so he's reading along in his Bible, and it's like, that describes what's in me. What does Isaiah say? Paul says, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. That's why he says, my ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named. Four things I believe this passage is pointing out to us. Two of them we hit last week. Let's review them quickly. Number one, in verse 14, we saw that Paul was very pleased with the church at Rome. He was pleased with the church at Rome. Mainly, a couple of things that all flow together. Verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with, a not, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Paul says, you know what I've heard of you? I've never been to Rome, but I am really satisfied that you guys have knowledge of God you have a relationship with God, and you're able to instruct one another. And I, I honestly, I'll just confess again. I've confessed on Wednesday night, seems like several times recently. I did a really poor job of driving this home last week. But I hope you will hear this. A pastor's, and in this case, an apostle's greatest joy is when he hears of God's people sharing truth with each other, instructing, counseling, admonishing, exhorting, advising, warning Please don't let the only thing that goes out is this hour here. You guys can do so much more than we can do in a Sunday school and in a brief time on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. You guys have the power. You have much more knowledge. Encourage each other, instruct each other in the Word of God. Number two, second thing we saw in the passage was out of verse 15 and 16. Not only was Paul pleased with the church, Paul says, I'm like a priest serving the Gentiles. Paul says, I was bold in my writing to you, and I believe that the Romans, as they're reading this, after 14 chapters would go, yeah, you're not kidding. You've been extremely forceful, very authoritative. We don't even know you to the face. We don't know who you are. We've heard of you, but we wouldn't know you if you walked in the building. How can you just be so authoritative toward us? Here's Paul's answer. It's because God has graced me with a gift. That's how I really see it. It was not my first desire. Paul's first desire was to be an apostle to the Jews. God said, no, that's not your main calling. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And boy, it really grew into him. And God gave him a passion for the Gentiles. And here's what Paul does. He says, I've never been there to Rome, but you are my business because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And my job is to present like a priest. I'm to present the ministry of the Gentiles in his day, all the way to our day and beyond. I want to present you as an acceptable offering to God. Watch. I don't want you just to be saved. Don't just be saved. Don't just be saved and informed. I want you to be set apart. Real quick, check yourself. You who would say, I am a Christian. Don't raise your hand. But if I said, if you know you're a Christian, raise your hand. A true Christian, a Bible Christian, not just a Christian of America. If you would raise your hand, then ask yourself this. Am I sanctified, set apart from the world to God? That's what the word sanctify. Paul says, I want an acceptable offering. I want you Gentiles to be acceptable to God. Again, set apart from the world and set apart to God. If your driving thought inside of you is, I want to have the same value system as America has. I want to look just like every other American. I want to talk about all the same things that all of the Americans, all the South Carolinians, all the Andersonians talk about. I want to be just like all of them. You're out of step with the Scripture. We're supposed to be different. I believe on every level, we think differently. We value things differently. We speak differently. I believe we even look differently. I'm not saying there's a Christian section at Belt, okay? I'm just saying the way, the way you present it. Please don't make your goal. I want to look just like Hollywood. Bad idea. Be different. Be different. That's Paul's goal. He wants us to be sanctified. And he tells us in the middle there, he says, I've written to you by way of reminder. Reminder. I like new information, but sometimes what we need is to be reminded of the familiar themes, and that's what Paul does. Our third thing, and really our first thing to focus on today is number three. Here we go. Not only was Paul, and by the way, I, am, I literally apologize for the alliteration. It is not intentional. Literally, these are the thoughts. I, those of you who are here all the time, you know, he just never goes out of his way to do alliteration. And there's going to be a couple of times today it just happens. And this is one of those. So Paul was pleased with the church. He used a priest serving the Gentiles. And then starting verse 17, 18, 19, here's pretty obvious. Paul is very proud 
of what Christ has accomplished. Paul's very proud, verse 17. He says, in Christ Jesus, that's a key phrase. In Christ Jesus, that's, that's where his pride is at. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud. Here his ministry is to us Gentiles. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And if it only stopped there, we might be tempted to take the second half of verse 17 and say, isn't that sin? Hey, Jeff, come on, you've preached on this before. Pride is sin. Yes, it is. Pride is sinful if it's in you. Verse 18, this rounds it out. Here's his real thought. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ. Yes, I'm proud of my work in Christ, but it is, here's my pride, is what Christ has done through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. You know what he's saying? God called me to be the apostle of the Gentiles, and he's blessing the ministry, and there's nothing wrong with that. I am very proud. I'm going to boast. I'm going to praise him for what he's been doing. And then he says, his work in me is by word and deed, by, power, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Paul's proud of Christ's accomplishments. If you ever try to minister, if you've ever tried to minister, do ministry. I really want you to listen. You should already know this, but we need this by way of reminder. Right? We need to be reminded. God can do great things with you. God can do great things without you. God can do anything and everything without you. He could literally put you to the side and never use you or me again and do great things in Anderson. God is doing great things in Anderson. He does not have to use Grace View Church to be part of any of it. He does not need us. He does not need me. He does accomplish. We guys are like a tool in the toolbox, we're like an instrument in the case. If God chooses, by the way, I believe he is not obligated. He is never obligated. I seek these things I call God encounters every week at Graceview. I want a God encounter every week. It could look like a warning. It could be a rebuke. It could be a conviction. It could, be, it could make me cry, feeling my blessings. It could, it could challenge me. But at some point, I want God to really talk to me, be it through the music, through fellowship, through the reading of the Scriptures, through teaching and preaching. I just want God to have a God encounter with us. But I want to tell you, He doesn't have to do that ever. He doesn't owe it to us. It is always His grace. We need to remember that. Those of you who attempt to do ministry, we are completely dependent on God. Right now, I'm trying to do ministry. I am completely dependent on God. I believe this. We should, now, there's kind of two types of ministry. There's living life and there's ministry that just happens spontaneous. And then there are those planned times where we plan to do ministry. I believe on those, we should plan. And I think we should plan ministry. I don't, by God's grace, I hope I never step up here and just haphazardly say, well... I'm going to trust the Lord in the moment to give me a message. You, most of you know that I hopefully come with a plan. And I believe we more than just plan, we start preparing. And those of you who've tried ministry, I believe we should plan. We should prepare. And we might even practice. Practice is a good thing. But at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, we've got to realize this. God, it's all riding on whether or not you show up. It's all about your presence, your power. Now, Lord, I pray that you've been in the planning, you've been in the preparation, and you've been in the practicing. But, Lord, we, and again, I apologize for all the peace today. I, I, Lord, we need your power. We need your presence. That's going to make the difference. God, that's the only difference. If anything good happens today, specifically zero it in on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you to do this ministry. I, I can't do it. Paul realizes this. Paul refuses to embellish ministry results. He's just not going to do it. I'm sure it's fictitious. I hope it's fictitious. Story is told of a pastor, and he's getting together with some of his old seminary buddies, and they're sitting around going out to eat, maybe a reunion of some type. And one of them says, "Hey, man, how about your church? How long you been there?" He tells them how long. Well, listen, how many how many folks are coming to your church? What size church do you have? And not wanting to be embarrassed. He had already thought that question's probably going to come up, and so he had already thought of his answer. And so he tells the old college seminary guys, 
Oh, on a typical Sunday morning, we're between three and 400. Now let that sink in. He wasn't lying. He said, yeah, we're between three and 400. And you're hearing that saying, what's wrong with that? Watch my fingers. Yeah, on Sunday morning, we'll be between three and 400. See it? So he has about 20 people that come to his church. It was just fine. 20 is much closer to 3 than it is to 400. But his answer, yeah, we got between 3 and 400. <laughs> Why is he doing this? To hedge himself and to kind of, I want to be seen in this way. Stop doing that. By the way, we do this all the time. All of us, we do this. We go through life talking about our little accomplishments and, and how much we have and what our kids have accomplished and what our kids are doing, what our grandkids, and they just constantly, if we check our heart sometimes, it's nothing but self-exaltation, and God hates it. That is sin, but if you're taking notes, watch this. Self-exaltation is sin, always sin, but to fail to celebrate what God is doing among us, that's sin. And we're just like, well, I don't want to be seen, uh, sound as bragging, so we're not going to talk about what God's been doing. Paul says, no, that's the wrong attitude. I want to give you a couple of verses to look at. Acts chapter 15, look at verse number 12. He said, when is this, Jeff? This is at the first conference of the church. We call it the Jerusalem Council. So the Jerusalem Council is meeting. This is at the end of the first missionary journey the discussion is, can Gentiles like us become true Christians without first becoming Jewish? And so this is really throwing them back. All the Old Testament, Jew, Gentiles have to become Jewish proselytes. And now some Christians are going around saying Gentiles are becoming Christians without becoming Jewish. So they meet together. Peter stands and preaches and says, hey, some Gentiles became Christians right in front of me. And they never were. They never became Jewish. I saw the Holy Spirit de descend on them. I was preaching, gave them the gospel. Spirit descended. They believed. I've got witnesses. You guys saw it too. You guys know this is what happened. Watch this verse. Paul and Barnabas, just fresh off of the first missionary journey, all the assembly, here's all the elders and all the big shots in Christianity are in Jerusalem. And here's what the Bible says. All the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Well, they're just up bragging. No, they're not. They're telling what God had done. At the end of the third missionary journey, Acts chapter 21, look at verse 19. Paul is again, this time Luke is writing and Luke's with the team. And Luke says that we ended the third missionary journey. We come to Jerusalem. This time again we meet with the elders and even Pastor James is there. And after greeting them... He, Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Please, I want to offer this to you guys. Boast, brag about what God is doing among us, through us, um, among your work, through your work. But check your heart's motive. Make sure your motive is in no way tinged with self-exaltation. Paul's attitude in verse 17, In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. Now, look at verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 17, uh, 18 at the end. Verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And he tells how the Holy Spirit did this. How did Christ accomplish? Two categories. By word and deed. He doesn't say it here, and I might be wrong. I'm going out, just throwing this out. I believe what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit, here's how he's done it. The Holy Spirit has empowered my words. God's just been using my teaching and my preaching. And I think maybe Paul even means here, he's written some books by this time, even my written word. God sometimes has already come upon him, inspired him. It is God's word, and Paul writes some of these letters. He's already written Galatians. I believe at this point, yes, he's already written to the Corinthians. Here he is, A.D. 56. Now he's writing to the Romans, and Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit's just blessing my ministry. When, when Barnabas and I teach and preach, God is blessing it. And when I'm writing some of these letters, God is blessing that and using that. And then he says, by word and deed, deed. And I believe verse 19 qualifies and explains the end of verse 18. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders. What do signs do? Signs point us. Signs give indications. Signs do share some information, but mainly keep us headed in the right direction. Again, I'm going to use the word signs point. Wonders, what is that? That's the effect 
that the deed that Paul did had on people. People see some of these deeds and they're just awestruck. Wow. Paul says the Holy Spirit's using us in word and in deed. The deeds are sometimes even signs and wonders. He's talking about the miraculous. I want to challenge you. The next time you're reading the book of Acts, notice how Luke tells some things that Paul was used by God to do. Used by God to do. I'm going to give you a sample. Ready? Imagine you're here and all of a sudden Paul comes in and he's working his way through this island called Paphos and they're having some ministry success and he and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. They come to the chief man of the island named Sergius Paulus. He's the governor. Paul's trying to win the governor of the island to Christ but there's this man called Elymas, a magician, a sorcerer who the Bible says withstood Paul and opposed Paul and Barnabas. And Paul had enough of that, and all of a sudden, I won't read it all, but he says, Oh, you full of the devil, full of all subtlety, you villain. And he goes out and he just lambastes this guy, and he says, You're full of sin, and he says, You will be struck with blindness. And sure enough, Elymas, a sorcerer and a magician who has power and has everybody in the island fooled, Paul, more powerful than him, strikes him with blindness. Sergius Paulus, the chief man of the island, sees this happen and says, I think I'm listening to these guys. And then he gets saved. Sergius Paulus gets saved as a result of a sign and a wonder and a miracle performed by Paul. Later on, they go up into the mountains of Turkey, what we call Turkey. They come to the city of Lystra. Paul is preaching. I have no, many, how many, no idea how many people are there. But Paul's preaching in some way, probably like I am now, teaching and preaching. And there's a man apparently near the front who is crippled, has never walked a day in his life. He didn't lose his ability to walk. He's never walked a day in his life. Paul's preaching, and then out of the corner of his eye, he sees this man looking intently, and Paul's just like, just rise up and walk. Says it with a loud voice, and the man rises up and walks. Unfortunately there, the whole town wants to now worship Paul as a god, and he has to tell them. And really quirky, they end up stoning Paul by the end of that day. Try to kill him. But nevertheless, he was used to heal a man that was crippled from birth. You'll remember this. On the second missionary journey, he goes to a city called Philippi. He's never been there. He arrives in Philippi. There's this slave girl who keeps following them around, and she's saying things about he and Silas. But she's full of a demon. She is possessed of a devil. She has an ability, because of being possessed by the devil, to apparently do some version of fortune-telling, and she makes her masters a lot of money, and Paul has finally had enough of it, and he casts the devil out of this girl, and all of a sudden, she has no more power. And her masters are very upset for not getting any more money. You've taken her ability away. And they end up having Paul and Silas beaten and thrown in jail. Nevertheless, he casts a demon out. Another time, he's in the city of Ephesus, 300,000 people. Paul, listen, God was blessing Paul's ministry so much. Watch this. Paul is not even there. But aprons and handkerchiefs that had been worn by Paul were taken around. They were bringing all the sick people out. God was moving so much. And people were just being touched by aprons and handkerchiefs that had touched Paul and they're being healed. And you're like, well, that makes no sense. He surely has to be there. No, God is using him so powerfully, he's not even there. Kind of like Peter at one time, just the shadow of Peter walked by and, and hit people and they started getting healed. And demons cast out of them. This is what Paul is talking about. Holy Spirit's blessed my ministry with signs and wonders, these awesome deeds and through his words. Let me give you two more. Those who have been here a while, you'll say, well, Jeff preaches a long time. Paul preaches a long time. He's ending up the third missionary journey. Read it. He preaches till midnight. And they're up in an upper room somewhere. And there's a young man. The word that's used for him is apparently a young man between the ages 14, maybe 18. His name is Eutychus, which means fortunate. So he's sitting in the window. And while Paul is preaching till midnight, poor kid just gets so sleepy, falls right out of the window, falls three floors and dies. Dead. Paul goes down and raises the young man back to life. That's signs and wonders. As he's on a, on a sailing journey and approaching Rome, he ends up shipwrecked in Acts chapter 27. As he comes to chapter 28, they're shipwrecked on an island of Malta. There's a man there who has dysentery. Paul heals him of dysentery. Other sick people start coming out. One after another, signs and wonders. And you may be sitting there saying, why does God do these signs and wonders through the Apostle Paul? Hear me well, there's a reason. Here's my point. Here's what we're heading for. 
So why don't we see all these things today? I believe there's a real exact reason why God allowed these signs and wonders to be performed by Paul 2,000 years ago. Go in your mind, pretend, pretend. Say, I have a completed Bible. I want you to go back 2,000 years ago. There was only what we call the Old Testament. They surely didn't call it the Old Testament. They had no New Testament. Just like today, there were people running around saying, I have truth, I have the ways of life, you need to listen to me, follow my teaching. So they had Dr. So-and-so, and they had Judge So-and-so, they just didn't have a TV program, right? And so, here's the problem, who are we going to listen to? All of these people are saying they have the truth, and they're religious people and philosophers. Who are we going to follow? God, I believe as we study the New Testament, validates His men, His true messengers, His true teachers from the false teachers by giving his men the power of signs and wonders. Why? They didn't have the New Testament. And so as he gives them the power of signs and wonders, Peter had it, John had it, Paul has it. All of a sudden now we know when these men write these books and they say they're the Word of God, then that's the books that are going to go into the New Testament. We're going to listen to them. These are the true men of God. What does Christ do? He validates the ministry of his men by signs and wonders. Now, I'll just be honest with you. We're not going to do it today. I don't know when we'll do it. I know some of you may be sitting there saying right now, okay, Jeff, you've said this before. Spiritual gifts, all Christians have them. There are speaking gifts, and there are serving gifts, and then there's these that are here that we're talking about with Paul. There are sign gifts, miracles, healings, things like that, natural wonders, the ability to speak in languages they've never studied. And everybody knows you've never been there. You don't know how to speak that. And all that. How can you communicate to them? They just have the ability to speak languages. The Bible calls it tongues. You're like, Jeff, is that real? Absolutely is real. Absolutely. Now, here's the b- debate. Are those sign gifts still going on or have they ceased? And so there's two groups. There's the continuationist. Yes, they're still in play. Still happening. And then there's the cessationists. They have ceased. They've served their purpose. They validated the men of God who were going to write the New Testament. Now we know we have the New Testament. So we don't need those things and God let those go off the scene. I have my belief and I have my reasons for those. And one of these days we'll come up on it and we'll preach upon it. Right now I'll just leave you. Well, I, I lean toward cessationism. That's just me. But you may not. That's fine. We can, we can disagree on that. That's not something we're going to fight about. Here's my point. We love the miraculous. That's so what I want to propose to you. God allowed Paul to do signs and wonders before the New Testament was written. But now you say, Jeff, how do we know today if somebody is a true teacher of God? I guess if they have Dr. So-and-so in front of their name, then that's, we should follow them. Don't let that be your criteria. Well, maybe if they're a pastor, don't let that be your, your criteria. Well, I guess if they have a pulpit and a microphone, or maybe if they have a radio show or a television show, or watch, they're a really persuasive speaker. They're a good talker. Don't let that be your criteria. Watch this. Well, they seem to have power to do things. Don't let that be your criteria. You say, Jeff, watch the criteria. Real simple. Does their message line up with the New Testament. That's the test. I don't care how good a speaker they are, doesn't matter how powerful they appear appear to be, does their message line up with the New Testament? That is the test of who are the true teachers and preachers of God. We're very fascinated by the miraculous. I mention this for this reason because sometimes we may do this. We value miracles way up here and words, content, doctrine... Matching with Scripture down here. Did you see what that guy... Here's what makes me nervous. This is important. Every now and then, in fact, since I've been here, I've had such conversations as I'm about to share with you. Every now and then, I'll speak with someone and try to fill out, what are you trusting to go to heaven? Sometimes you'll come across someone and their whole story has to do with an experience. I had an experience. And it might be a dream, a feeling. It might be even, I think I heard something, or I saw something. It happened in the night, or while I was going down the road, I saw a sign. But in their whole time of giving their testimony, they never say anything about putting their faith and trust in Jesus. They're talking about this experience, and it was life-changing X amount of years ago. Can I tell you something? That may have happened. Very well could have happened. But on the other side, every now and then I'll find someone, and and here's, here's their story. Well, 
my mama told me that I got saved as a Christian when I was a little boy or little girl. I don't remember the exact day. All I know is I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to tell you, this one here has a time, a day, an experience. This one over here can't give you the time and the day. All they know is they've got some verses out of the Scripture and they're trusting those things and they put their faith and trust in Christ based off what the Bible says. I'm going to tell you as a pastor, this one may have happened. I have much more confidence in this one over here. If this one over here is detached from Jesus and faith in Christ. Don't put your faith in experience. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it should be. Write this down. Miracles in the Bible brought physical restoration. It's wonderful. It's a good thing. Some of us would love to have physical restoration. But miracles in the Bible, their primary purpose was not just so that some people would feel better or have restoration. The point of the miracles was as the order in verse 18 gives it, by word and deeds. I'm going to propose to you that the deeds were pointing to the words. It was to point the audience to the words of the gospel. Peter and John are coming up to the temple and they heal a man just like Paul did. They heal a man who's never walked a day in his life. All of a sudden the crowd gathers. They know this miracle. They know that man is not a fake. This is real. And where did these men get these power? Paul, you, I'm sorry, Peter uses this opportunity to preach the gospel. The miracle was not an end of itself. Before we move on to our second point, I'll leave you with this thought on the third point. No one, challenge you, read it. No one in Scripture is ever brought to salvation by seeing a miracle. I saw a miracle, maybe even had it done upon me. People do not get saved by seeing a miracle or experiencing a miracle. The miracle is a sign that's pointing people, I need to hear what they have to say in the Bible times. Write this down. Salvation only comes... By hearing God's promises. This is key. Here's how salvation comes. You hear God's promises about Christ and then you believe those promises. That's how salvation happens. Not by having an, a, a miracle occur to someone you love, around you. You see it as wonderful, wonderful things. That's not why you, you know you're going to heaven. You know you're going to heaven because you've heard the promises of God in the Word of God about Christ. You put your faith and trust in those promises. Our fourth thought out of this passage, these eight verses, comes in verse 20 and 21. Here we go. Paul was not only pleased with the church in Rome, and Paul was, let me get my thought, think it again. Paul was a priest serving the Gentiles. Paul was very proud of the accomplishments of Christ, even through him in word and in deed. But now we find the fourth thing. Paul was an ambitious pioneer. You say, you don't see the word pioneer in verse number 20, 21, Jeff. I think you're kind of going out of your way trying to do alliteration. Trust me, this is the idea. Look at verse 20 again. Paul was an ambitious pioneer. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little head start getting into verse 20. I'm going to back up to verse 19. Paul says, So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, watch Paul's attitude, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. They already know about Christ there. That's not Paul's business. That's not his ambition. He's a pioneer. Watch what he writes. Not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, he quotes Isaiah, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. That's where I want to give my time and energy. That's where I'm going to spend my life as the apostle to the Gentiles. With that in mind, would you go back just a few chapters? Romans 10. Flip back to Romans 10. I know we were there in February. A long time ago, February. Romans 10. I want to read three verses here that go with this. So here's our thought. Paul was an ambitious pioneer. He's a pioneer. Verse 13. I said earlier, invite the Holy Spirit to really teach you the text today and then say to the Lord, Lord, would you speak to me and I'll obey what you show me. I want to really encourage you to do that as we hit this fourth point. Romans 10, verse 13. Hear the Bible. For everyone who calls, this is the Bible, 
It's a promise from God. If you've never heard this before, hear this. You are going to hear enough in this one verse to go to heaven if you would put your faith and trust in it and act upon this. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is not simply saying, Lord. The verses before this, here's what it means. Jesus, the verse before, Jesus is the Lord. I'm not just acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord. I'm acknowledging Jesus is my Lord. Here's what the passage is saying. Anyone here this morning, anyone, because the Bible says everyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You will be saved. What that means is you say, you are my Lord. I receive you as my Lord. I'm calling you my Lord. Have you done that? Have you ever done that? Now verse 14. How then? So that's the fact. That's, that's the truth. That's the promise. Here's some questions Paul has. How then will they call on him? Hey, if anyone calls on the Lord, they'll be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's not just saying, okay, I'll say that. Jesus, you're my Lord. No, you do that as a result. I believe this. I believe this. I've been convinced of this. You are my Lord. I receive you as my Lord. Why would anyone do that? Verse 14. How then will they call? The idea of will they call and mean it? On him in whom they have not believed. They won't. No one will do that. Next question. How are they? And how are they to believe? In him of whom they've never heard. Everyone who calls is saved. But how is anybody going to call if they don't believe? And how are they going to believe if they've never heard? Verse 14 continues. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And by the way, don't think of preaching as pastor, evangelist, someone's preaching on Sunday morning only. This is people speaking truth to each other like chapter 15, verse 14. Someone's got to tell them. And then verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We probably spent over an hour that day back in February on these points. I'm going to say them verbally. Please hear them. Extremely important. We had six facts out of these, this passage back then. I'm going to offer them to you again. This was a review of the, of the entire book of Romans leading up to chapter 10. Here's what the Bible has taught us. Watch. All people. Note the words all and only and many. Here it comes. All people everywhere, let that sink in, taste that. All people everywhere know of God and reject Him. You say, Jeff, I don't know that everybody, in the, in, in everybody around the world knows of Jehovah, Yahweh, God. That's not what we're saying. They have a conscience and they've been stamped in their being that there is a God. They may have unlearned that there's a God. They may have been, you know corrupted by some teacher and now they don't believe in God anymore but there was a time everyone in the world knows of God this is in Romans 1 and chapter 2 everyone knows of God and everyone has rejected the true version of God we like to make our own little versions that's called idolatry that leads to the second point hear it all people are guilty of sin all people all around the world are guilty of sin and therefore they are under condemnation from God and they must be saved. That's why we keep using this word, need to be saved. Have you ever been saved? Everyone knows of God. Everyone has rejected God. Everyone commits sin. Everyone is born in this world under condemnation and earns that condemnation by how we live. We all must be saved. Now here comes the one that a lot of people don't like. This is Bible. I don't have time to give you all the passages and dig it out. If you want that, go back to our website. Go back to February and look for the verses that have to do with this text. And listen to those reasons. These statements can be backed up by Scripture. Here's the third one. Salvation. Okay. Everybody knows of God. We've all rejected. Everybody's sin under condemnation needs to be saved. So is salvation possible? Listen. Salvation is possible, but it is only, only by faith in Christ. You say, I've heard that a hundred times. You better taste it. Salvation is only by faith in Christ. Only. 
Next one. Faith only comes by hearing. No one's going to have faith in Christ if they've never heard of Jesus Christ. They have to hear about Jesus Christ. Fifth fact. Many, at least one billion people, have never heard the good news about Christ. So right about now, you should be saying, hold on, this is presenting some problems. All have knowledge of God but have rejected it and inwardly gone to idolatry. We all commit sin. Therefore, we're all under condemnation, need to be saved. Salvation is possible, but it is only by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ can only happen by hearing of Christ, and many have never heard. I don't like that. That sounds unfair, and I realize where your mind's going, and you need to go back and listen to that sermon in February. Here's the sixth fact. God commands the church to make the gospel known to all people. So as we just read verses 13, 14, 15, here's the summation. Hear it. God sends preachers. I put preachers in quotes. Again, not pastors. They don't have to be licensed preachers. Just people who know the gospel. Here's how it happens. God sends preachers. Preachers preach. They speak. People hear. People hear. Watch this. Some who hear believe. I believe that. Those who really do believe call on Jesus as Lord. All of those who call on Jesus as Lord are saved. Did you catch it? God sends preachers, people who know the gospel, men, women, young people, sends them out. They speak the gospel. People hear the gospel. Some of the hearers believe, those who really believe, call out because they believe. All who call out get saved. You say, wow, okay. And here's the thing. If anywhere along that path, Anywhere that pattern is broken, what happens? If people aren't sent, they don't preach. If people are sent, money is given, and they've answered a call, and they go over there, but they don't speak, then people aren't going to hear. And if people don't hear, they're not going to believe. And if they don't believe, they're surely not going to call. If they never call, they're not going to be saved. If they're not saved, what happens? What happens to these people? They go to hell. They go to hell. So my question this morning is this. What if we, this morning in August, what if we really, really believe that? What if we really believe that and the ramifications of that? What if we stop thinking, wonder how long till the service is over? Now, hold on. Time out. You just said a billion people have never heard about Jesus. Wait a minute. We've got to think this through. If we really believed... Everybody out there knows of God. Even if they don't know the God of the Bible, they know of God. Yes, creation, conscience, innately in them. Yes, they've rejected it. They've gone another way. They've all sinned. They're all under condemnation. Salvation is available, but it's only through Christ. It's only by faith in Christ. But if they never hear, then they can't have faith in Christ. If we really believe that, you say, well, Jeff, if we really did believe that, then we would probably be all about missions around here. Missions would probably be our number one focus. And to that I would say, almost. You have a powerful quote, and I believe a biblical doctrine from John Piper. So we do need to feel the urgency of missions, and that's where we're going today as we make our way back to chapter 15. This is obviously where we're going. But Piper offers the following, if you want to write it down. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. You're like, what? Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. I know many of you have heard that quote before, but there's some of you right now going, I have never heard that. This, I believe, is a biblical perspective. Let me read it again. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Hey, what does that mean? Why don't you write that down? Look this way. What does that mean? I think here's the paradigm. Here's the proper way of looking at this. Say, Jeff, do we not pray and like, I mean like sacrifice and give and write checks and pray some more and really pray about do I need to go and even like leave home? Leave home. I love America and like I, some are going to go over there. 
Don't we do it because people will go to hell if we don't? Absolutely. That's one of the main, main reasons. It's one of the main reasons. There may be a young person, middle-aged person, older person sitting here this morning. You need to go to them. And one of your main purposes, your main motives may be because I don't want people to go to hell. They're going to go to hell unless they hear about Jesus. It's the only way. I've read those passages. No one can go to the Father except by me. There's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Romans chapter 10, it's all in there. You have to put your faith in Christ. We've got to go tell them. I'm going to go tell them. They're going to go to hell. That's a great second motive. First motive is this, guys. If, if God could roll back and we were to see God right now, you know what would happen? We'd say, I want those people to get saved. But more than that, God, you deserve to be worshipped. We got whole sections and pockets on this globe where people are not worshiping you. You deserve to be worshiped. I'm going to go tell those people, and they're going to be one to Christ, and they're going to start worshiping you because you are that great. It's about Christ, guys. It's always about Christ. The byproduct and the benefit to us is we don't go to hell, we get to go to heaven. The main thing is worship. That's what drives the church, that's what drives mission. More people get saved, more people worship Christ. Romans 15. Romans 15, look at verse 20. Because Paul gives this analogy here, and it's a little puzzling at first. Ready? Paul says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So we have this analogy. I want to make two quick points. Y'all ready? Ready for two points about this analogy? This, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Point number one about that. Here it is. You ready? Do not mistake this lest I build on someone else's foundation as Paul being a maverick, as Paul being uh, going rogue, or as Paul, watch this, this is not Paul saying, hey, that's fine for you guys. I like to build my own floor plan. Okay? You guys, y'all can build on that same old foundation. I'm going to start my own foundations with my own floor plan. Say, Jeff, you, you lost me. Watch. This is not Paul talking about the message. I know you guys have that message. I kind of want to start my own philosophy, my own message. No, it is not about the message. It's about the location of the message. Paul is not talking about the content of his gospel. He's talking about the location of his gospel. Paul's ambition is, I want to preach the one true gospel. Yeah, Paul, we all want to do the same thing. We all want to preach and teach the same. There's only one gospel. Exactly right. But Paul is saying, I want to go where no one has yet heard the name. That's where I want to spend my energy. That's what God put into him. That was his passion. He sees his calling. I am a pioneer preacher going where they've never heard. They've never heard about Jesus. They have to. I'm going to them. Second thought about this analogy of, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. Second thought. Ready? You want to write this one down? Building on another's foundation is not wrong. So if you're reading verse 20 and go, well, I guess doing ministry where people already know about Jesus, I guess that's wrong. Verse 20, this is not a command. This is a description of the calling in Paul's life. You're just a few pages away. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 3. Probably about four or five pages away. Flip over there, 1 Corinthians 3. Here's the point I'm going to make. Building on someone else's foundation is not wrong. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. I am pretty sure I'm the third pastor at Graceview. And if you were to go back to some of this same congregation when you were north side, I think I'm probably the sixth pastor, at least the sixth pastor, maybe seventh. I'm not sure. I'm building on someone else's foundation. I didn't start this work. So is it wrong? Is it sinful? No. So don't take Paul's ambition in Romans 15, 20 as saying that anyone who does another kind of ministry that's not exactly like Paul's, that's wrong. Don't hear this and say, I guess we all have to do exactly like Paul. 1 Corinthians 3, watch verse number 5. So here's the setting. Paul went into Corinth. No one knew about Jesus. No one there knew about Jesus. There's a couple there, and they're Jewish, and they're looking for the Messiah. I've never been told about him. Paul comes in, starts working with Aquila and Priscilla, and all of a sudden, he's making tents and working with leather, and then on the weekends, he's down preaching at the synagogue, telling the Jews, your Messiah's already come. They've never heard about Jesus, and all of a sudden, there's a church in Corinth. Paul ministers there for a while. Then Paul leaves. Another man named Apollos comes after Paul, and I believe Paul, Apollos is probably a more gifted speaker and preacher even than Paul. 
And so all of a sudden, all these people in the church starts growing. And man, we love Apollos, but you got some old guard people. Well, I still like Paul. He's the founder. He's the apostle. And so I'm still, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a disciple of, of Paul. These over here, well, I'm a disciple of our new pastor. I like him. So there's this division. Verse 5. Paul rebukes all of that. He says, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, he's doing what he's supposed to do. I did what I was supposed to do. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered. You get the picture? There's a field. One guy's out there breaking the ground, planting some seed. He leaves, another guy comes along and waters it and picks the weeds and sets up some stakes. And all of a sudden, it starts shooting up. He starts pulling the fruit. Well, Apollos is getting all the numbers. No, it's okay. Paul broke the ground. Paul planted the seed. Apollos waters. Verse 6 again. I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth. It's God's ministry. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his, his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now he goes back to this other analogy, verse 10. You're God's building, Corinthians. According to the grace of God given to me, to me, here's what, how it happened, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I was the first guy in town. I started preaching the gospel. Some of you got saved. So he says, I laid a foundation. And someone else, Apollos, is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Paul, all, all, all Paul is saying is, I'm a foundation layer. Once that foundation is there, I'm moving on. Where do they not have a foundation? Hey, you come in behind me. You build on what I've done. Okay, it's great. You have your calling. I have mine. Off Paul goes. So some water, some plant, some weed, some pluck the harvest. All this means, Paul's saying, you know what? God gave me less of a pastor, a heart of a pastor and more the heart of a missionary. It's just in him. Romans 15. Look at verse 19. Romans 15, look at verse 19. Paul says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Illyricum? You say, where is this? They tell us this is in Albania, former Yugoslavia, up where northern Italy connects with way up above Greece, right in that point. So when did Paul go here and do this? It's not recorded in the scripture. I don't know. The best guess we have is toward the end of the third missionary journey. All we know is Paul went there 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. He says, I've preached all the way around, and you could look at it on a map and see why he uses the word roundabout to Illyricum. Now catch this. Verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He says, this is me. Isaiah was talking about me. Those who've never been told of him will see. Those who've never heard will understand. My job, I want to go to those people. So this morning, this morning, while you're sitting there, not everyone's going to have a call on their life to go to a foreign field like Paul always went to. But maybe somebody will. Maybe one person. Literally, God has wired you this way. Before he even got saved, Paul was the adventuresome type. He's going up to Damascus, 150 miles from where he lives. Why? Because he's a passionate, religious man. He's not even saved. He's a traveler. He's willing to go. He's adventurous. He's a pioneer. Then he gets saved. God uses that. You may be sitting here this morning, and it is in you to be like Paul. Fan the flame. Don't squelch it. If there's anything, even while I'm saying this, it's sitting in you like, I am so interested in that whole concept. That sounds exciting to me. And not just vacation exciting. There's people who've never heard about Jesus. They're going to die and go to hell without it. I think I might want to go tell them. Fan that flame. William Barclay says of John of Livingstone, he says, when Livingston volunteered as a missionary with the London Missionary Society, it's back in 1841, they asked him, where would you like to go? He said, anywhere, so long as it is forward. They sent him to Africa. He arrived in 1841. Barclay writes of Livingston. He says, when he reached Africa, he was haunted by the smoke of a thousand villages which he saw in the distance. Livingston with the gospel. He starts teaching. What is that? Well, that's another village. They've never heard. 
What is that? And he looks all around. I've got work for a lifetime. And it consumed him. That's what he wanted to do. Christians, hear me. Every Christian has a part in taking the gospel to the nations. All of our part may not be exactly Livingstone or Paul. But you have a part. I want to encourage you. Ask God, what is your part? Think of it this way. Here's Paul. If you were to study the book of Acts and the missionary journeys, it's like this is a region of people here. No one has ever heard about Jesus. Paul's strategy, he would go to the big cities in that area and speak big city, six foot eight. So he's going to win Ryan Rife to Christ. And he wins Ryan Rife to Christ and his wife Rachel. And they're going to win Natalie and the Barrows. And all of a sudden, it's going to spill out. You guys, hey, I'm winning Ryan and Rachel. I've got to move on because this region has never heard about Christ. So he wins Joan Horton, who wins her husband, Chuck. And their job is win these people around you. And now you guys, hey, there's some towns and villages, and you've got to spread out. I've got to go. Get busy. Tell people, because I've got to win somebody over here, and he wins somebody over there. That's Paul's strategy. Read the book of Acts. It's all in there. Paul's just not haphazard. He's like, we've got to go. Now, you've got to start evangelism. I'm doing missions. And I believe there is a difference between the two. Back in February, I said the following. The International Mission Board has, last year's number, 3,562 supported foreign missionaries. So we have like 5,000, I think, North American missionaries. 3,562 foreign missionaries. And you may hear that and say, that's awesome. That's great. It is. But there are 46,000 Southern Baptist churches. 46,000 Southern Baptist churches, 3,562 foreign, not North America, other, other continents, foreign missionaries. 46,000, we've run the numbers before, you'll remember, you would have to go to 13 churches to find one foreign supported missionary by the International Mission Board. I don't know that that's where we're supposed to be, guys. I've I, I got to believe there should be more, and maybe we're saying, well, there's not enough financial support to send more. Duh, that's a problem. Or maybe we have funds to send more, but no one's feeling the call to go. No one's of the adventurous spirit. No one has the burden for, for souls in foreign lands. Like Paul, that's a problem. And I want Grace View to not be part of the problem. We need a renewed emphasis. By God's grace, we will not speak of missions only at Easter and at Christmas. Already in my heart, and it's been coming out, if you've been on Wednesday nights, this seems in the last four months, hardly four to five, maybe six weeks goes by, but that we do a night dedicated to missions. This Wednesday night coming up, Brian and Martha Connor are going to be with us, and they're going to talk about how they're getting ready to go to West Africa in January. You need to come. Have a question on your heart. Come. You say, I don't normally come Wednesday night. Come. I know my question. We're going to dinner with them on Tuesday night. I want to ask them, tell me about your call. How did you know? Tell us about that. What did that feel like? When did it start? You ought to be here. Missions is going to be a point of emphasis beginning in our children's ministry. It's going to. Now, if you as a parent hear that and say, hold on, what did you just say? Are you going to be telling my kids as they're just like little four, five, six, eight, nine, ten-year-olds about missions? Planting seeds in their mind? What are you doing down that hallway? That's exactly what we're going to do, be doing because it's biblical. And if you're like, I don't know that I like that. I would suggest change your heart. And if you're just like, that just makes me nervous. We might not be the church for you. That's what we're going to do. And that mentality needs to go throughout. I believe we, we need to get out of this mentality, this one here. I think the American church has fallen into this and it's a big competition. Here's the mentality. I call it this. What do you offer me? So it's where all the churches, hey, I've got plenty of options. So here comes a Christian. What does your church offer me? How often do you feed me? What's my prize if I come to your thing? Well, hold on. Let me see. Now, what's yours? Hey, they're winning. You might want to step your game up. They've got more. Okay. Whoa! This one over here. Off, and, and that mentality starts at the cradle to the grave, man. It runs all the way throughout. What are you going to do for this group and for this group and for them and them? 
I want us to start asking a different question, and it goes like this. What can you offer God in the limited time you have to live your life? That's the question we need to be asking. Stop, what can you do for me? No, God, what can I do for you? I only have a little time here. See, T. Studd worded it this way. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Once again, I'm going to have to leave off some slides. My time is gone. I want to leave you with this thought. Paul was pleased with the church at Rome. Paul sees himself, I'm a priest, doing priestly work. I want to offer the Gentiles as an acceptable, sanctified offering to God. I am so proud of what God has done. But Paul says, in me, God has put a pioneer spirit. And I have this ambition. I want to preach the one true gospel where they've never heard it. Would you support me? And you're going to see next week, Paul's attitude is, I want you, I'm coming to you, Rome. And I want you, Romans, to send me to Spain. Because they've not heard yet. They need to hear. We don't know if Paul ever made it there or not. But he had an ambition. Here's my thought. You ready? Our American culture tells us all the time, blatantly or subtly, we're always being marketed to. Please hear this. The American culture tells us that those with the most intellect, talent, prestigious connections and titles, they're the elite. Wow. Look at their talent. Look at their resources. Look how smart they are. Look at their gifting. Look at that. They deserve that. They're the elite in the country. Guys, I have a sneaking suspicion. It's more than a hunch. When we get to eternity, here's what we're going to find out. The church's special forces, our elite forces, were those who were pioneers taking Jesus Christ to the nations where they had never heard. And it's not about talent. But I'm not that talented Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God. It's not my power to persuade and my power to speak it. It's God's power to speak it through me. They just, they've never heard. Guys, I promise you, what you get tired of hearing week to week, there's people who've never, Jesus, who is that? Christ, what does that mean? The Son of God. Oh yeah, we believe in sons of God. No, 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 no. The Son of God, the one true God. The only way to heaven. They've never heard it. Those who take the gospel to the nations are the elite. Paul's attitude, if you'll back me by prayer and support me financially, I want to be the guy that goes in the power of the Holy Spirit, armed with the power of the gospel, to see lives change. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just a couple of questions. Be honest. Do you have a passion for the worship of God? You say, Jeff, my passion for the worship of God is really, really cold, or at best, it's lukewarm. That happens when we don't see God for who He is, and that's probably because we've not meditated on Him, maybe not been meditating and reading in His Word, not been thinking of what He's done for us. But maybe you're sitting there and say, Jeff, I have a passion for the worship of God. Second question. Do you have a burden for souls on the other side of the world who have literally never heard the name Jesus, much less what He has done and who He is? Is there anything in you? Why? Well, I, hope, I hope this morning there's just a, even a few that just right there in your heart, your heart's kind of pounding, God's speaking to you even through the brokenness of this guy, but in the power of this passage and God is speaking to you and in you right now, you're like, I have a burden. Man, when, when we talked earlier how... All have sinned and all are under condemnation. The only way to be saved is through Christ. And you have to hear about Him before you can believe in Him. You have to believe in Him before you're going to call. But all who call will be saved. I want to be part of that process. Fan that. There are hell-bound souls on the other side of the world who have never heard about Jesus. Wherever you're at in that spectrum, cold, lukewarm, fervent, I want to invite you right now, this week, even leading up to next week's message, would you do this, just as honest as you can, 
Be bold to do it. You've got to take a risk here, but be, be honest, mean it. Lord, would you show me what my specific part is in taking the gospel of Jesus to the nations? Lord, would you reveal to me what my part is? Lord, I'll do whatever. If my part is to pray, to work a job here, and really sacrificially and cheerfully give, then I'll do it. But Lord, if my job is to surrender and to leave America and go where they've never heard, Lord, call me. If it's by your grace that I be one of those special forces people, then send me. What a joy. Wouldn't it be great if in a few years one of the young people sitting here this morning, never had that on their radar, is asking us, would you please support me as I go to the unreached peoples? Father, Lord, I'll surrender right now to whatever your, your part is for me. Lord, work through me in some way to spread the gospel of Christ. Lord, let my motive be I want you to be worshipped. Lord, let my motive be I have a burden for lost souls. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning that we would realize we were made to worship, we were made to serve. Not just to sit, to soak, be trained, informed, but to be a conduit through which you work. Lord, you know our heart, you know our motive, you know if we're playing a game, you know when we're real. So Lord, I pray that we would be real with you today and give you our life a living sacrifice. Let's stand.